Let's pray one more time. Yeah, we can handle one more time. We have prayed, and we've prayed, and we've prayed, and now we pray, God, that you would help us to be attentive to you, that you would give us ears that are good to hear, and eyes that are able to see, and hearts that are fertile soil for the planting of your word. I pray and ask that as my words are true to your word, that they be taken to heart. If my words stray or deviate or are inconsistent with your word and your words in any way, may they be uh, passed over, completely forgotten. Yes and amen. Amen. So I have a confession to make this morning, and there's nothing humorous about it. I have a confession to make this morning, and I will get specific about that in a few minutes. But let me say up front that my confession doesn't involve any of the sorts of things that pastors sometimes get tangled up in and make the news for or about, like illicit behavior or adulterous relationships or embezzling money from the church or sort of crafting a culture that's cult-like and power-obsessed, uh, none of those things, but it's a confession nevertheless. I'll talk about it a little bit more in a couple of minutes. For now, I'd like us to think about the whole big idea of confession. I'm guessing that one of two things comes to our minds when we hear the word confession. First, there is a confession of criminal activity, which in the movies and on TV at least, sometimes uh, is portrayed as a coerced or forced activity, a pressured confession. Detectives may be a good cop and a bad cop uh, take turns on a suspect trying to get him or her to spill the beans, uh, so to speak, tell the truth, come clean, write and sign a confession. The other kind of confession with which many of you may be familiar, either through knowledge or experience, is what good Catholic Christians do periodically with and before a priest, historically often in a sort of booth that's called a confessional booth, of course. But what we're talking about this morning is related but vastly different than a criminal confession. And what we're talking about this morning, which while it does have actually a good bit in common with what Catholics historically have practiced, is also different than that in a few ways, which we'll see. And this whole topic fits well with Lent, I think, I hope. Today is the first Sunday of the season of Lent, as Walter mentioned, which began last Wednesday, Ash Wednesday, and which goes for six and a half weeks, six Sundays. This is the first of them, 40 days plus Sundays, 46 days total. And during this season of Lent, historically, Christians have taken the opportunity to prepare for the celebration of Easter in more thoughtful, intentional ways than really sort of in the Christian year, the liturgical calendar, any other time of year. It's been a time for the church of walking somewhat solemnly with Jesus toward the cross. It's been a time historically of self-denial, of generosity, of fasting, of prayer, of contemplation, and introspection, which is why confession is a perfect fit. 
But why confession and how to go about that? The author of the book in the Bible that we know simply as James, probably the brother, half-brother of Jesus. We're not sure. This James wrote these familiar words. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Many of you know those words. But what comes immediately before that line is connected to those words is really interesting. Sort of the bigger context. Verse 13, chapter 5. Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayers offered in faith will make the sick person well. Which is an interesting word in Greek. Sort of whole complete. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that, that's a strong word in Greek grammar, so that you may be healed, literally, so that you may be healed cured, made well, made whole, or freed is the outer sort of edge of how that word is understood. Confess your sins to each other so that you may be healed, cured, made whole, made well, freed. But this is not something that we do a lot of, to be healed or cured or made whole or to be freed or otherwise. This is not something we do. This is not something I grew up doing in the church. I grew up in the church. Some of you, many of you did. This is not what anyone in the church that I was a part of when I was growing up was doing or talked much about doing as far as I knew or could see. And this has not been a significant or public part of any church I've been a part of for the last 30 years including this church, really. And why not? I thought we'd agree that if the Bible says it, that we'd do it. That if the Bible says to do it, that we're, we're, we're committed to doing it. But most Christians don't. And other than Catholic churches, most churches don't. And we might just be missing something here. And we might be missing something pretty important. Listen uh, to what Dallas Willard once said about confession. Confession actually is very important to discovering the soul. It's one of the disciplines that really can be revolutionary because it goes so deep into the unity of the person. Essentially, when you confess, you give up splitting the self. When you sin, you're always splitting yourself. Sin always splits the self to some degree. You know that you have harmed yourself and others, but you probably are not going to come to terms with that because you're carrying on a charade of righteousness, even if you don't believe that charade. So confession is very deep in the process of discovering the soul. When churches experience the spirit heavily, 
When there's a revival, confession is always one of the first signs of it. And we who sort of know the history of revivals in the church know that to be true. It's nearly inconceivable, Willard said, to me that you can have genuine revival without confession because the breaking of the hindrances and the saving of face that goes into the charade of ordinary living is what has to be left to fall on the floor. Someone interviewing him says, why does it seem like people confess at Alcoholics Anonymous meetings so readily and at churches not much at all or not deeply? To which Willard responds, well, AA got its start from the church. It's very sad that AA had to be invented to help people many of whom were already in the church because they could not be honest about they were, what they were living through in the church. So AA drew from the sources of Christian teaching about these things. You can imagine the difference that it would make if we began our church services or our meetings together in the church by saying, hi, I'm Dallas, I'm a recovering sinner. So much of our services are devoted to pretending everything is fine. We may have a little place where we confess our sins and receive absolution or something like that, but it doesn't go to the depth of our fellowship in the church. But it doesn't go to the depth of fellowship in our church, which is, I think, a lot of our experience. A lot of the ways that we have uh, experienced confession. In contrast, the biblical scholar Peter Enns has said, church is sometimes the most risky place to be honest. I, read across, I ran across that quote uh, a couple of weeks ago. It kind of stuck with me. The well-known Franciscan priest Richard Rohr has written, religion is one of the safest places to hide from God. Right? Isn't, I don't know. Maybe for some of us, there's a lot of irony there. Last week, our elder board and some of our staff discussed and read the opening chapter of a book, little book by, uh, called Life Together by the German Lutheran scholar, theologian, pastor, uh, anti-Nazi dissident, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was rounded up and imprisoned by the Gestapo uh, April 1943, spent the next two years in jail and prison, being moved around to prison camp, to concentration camp, to jail, until he was two years later, weeks before the Allies liberated Germany, executed for his part in an assassination attempt on Hitler. I'm gonna borrow uh, considerably, copiously, from this little book he wrote during the season immediately prior to his imprisonment. Picking up kind of where Willard left off. Bonhoeffer writes, confess your faults to one another, quoting James 5.16. Bonhoeffer continues, he who is alone with his sin is utterly alone. It may be that Christians, notwithstanding corporate worship, common prayer, and all their fellowship and service, may still, in other words, all of the things that we do together, may still be left to their loneliness. The final breakthrough to fellowship doesn't occur because though they have fellowship with one another as believers and as devout people, they do not have fellowship as, with one another as the undevout, as sinners. In other words, we live in community outwardly with all of our bright, shiny parts, our well-polished pieces, but not so much, not so well with the dirtier, more embarrassing parts. The pious fellowship permits no one to be a sinner. 
In other words, the sort of the self-righteous, upright on the outside. Doesn't really, it makes it difficult to be a, to live and to acknowledge our sin. So everybody must conceal his sin from himself and from the fellowship. We dare not be sinners. Many Christians are unthinkably horrified when a real sinner is suddenly discovered among the righteous. So we remain alone with our sin, living in lies and hypocrisy. The fact is that we are sinners. He goes on, the message of liberation through truth is liberation through truth. You can hide nothing from God. The mask you wear before men will do you no good before God. He wants to see you as you are, he does. And he wants to be gracious to you. You do not have to go on lying to yourself and your brothers and sisters as if you were without sin. You can dare to be a sinner. In the presence of Christ, all sham is ended. Therefore, he gave his followers, Jesus did the authority to hear the confession of sin and to forgive sin in his name. He talks about how Jesus became one of us in order that we might, through his power, through his gift, through his spirit, also convey him to act on his behalf. When he did that Christ, uh, when he did that Christ made the church, and when he did that Christ made the church and it our brother a blessing to us. And now we, brothers and sisters, can stand in front of each other as Christ and as forgivers. When I go to my brother to confess, I'm going to God. When I go to my sister now to confess in Jesus' way in his community, when he is among us, we go on behalf of God. So in the Christian community, when the call to brotherly confession and forgiveness goes forth, it is the call to the great grace of God in the church. Differently, the more isolated a person is, the more destructive will be the power of sin over him or her. Let's read that again, because I think there's a lot of truth there. The more isolated a person is, outside of community, outside of true fellowship, the more destructive will be the power of sin over him or her. And the more deeply she becomes involved in it, the more disastrous is her isolation. Sin wants to remain unknown. It shuns the light. In the darkness of the unexpressed, it poisons the whole being of a person. This can happen even in the midst of a pious community, even while one is sitting in a sanctuary. In confession, however, the light of the gospel breaks into the darkness and the seclusion of the heart. Since the confession of sin is made in the presence of a Christian brother or sister, the last stronghold of self-justification is abandoned. And he acknowledges that this is, while very good, also can be really hard. Fast forward. In confession occurs the breakthrough to the cross. The root of all sin is pride. Therefore, confession in the presence of a brother or sister is the profoundest kind of humiliation. It hurts, it cuts a person down, it is a dreadful blow to one's pride. To stand there before a brother or sister as a sinner is an ignominy that is almost unbearable. In the confession of concrete sins, the old man or the former person dies a painful, shameful death before the eyes of a brother. But dying she must do. In confession, we break through to the true fellowship of the cross of Christ. In confession, we affirm and accept our, our cross. In a deep mental and physical pain of humiliation before a brother or sister, which means before God, we experience the cross of Christ as our rescue and salvation. 
The old man, the former person, dies, but in God who has conquered sin, that person now lives even eternal life. In confession, the breakthrough to new life occurs. And then he says this, three words. Confession is conversion. That's a lot to chew on in a few little words. Confession is conversion. Think about it. He goes on, as the first disciples left and followed when Jesus called, so in confession the Christian gives up and follows. Confession is discipleship, he says here, which is awfully profound if we soak it in and think about it for a little bit. Confession is discipleship. We've got a whole bunch of other things, a program, a book, a sort of a department, right, about what discipleship is. He says that confession is discipleship. Life with Jesus Christ and his community has begun. In confession, the Christian begins to forsake his sins. Their dominion is broken. From now on, the Christian wins victory after victory. What happened to us in baptism is bestowed upon us anew in confession. Confession is the renewal of the joy of baptism. I want to keep going. I feel cheap for reading out of a book when I'm supposed to be re- preaching a sermon. I'll leave it there for now. It's called Life Together. I encourage you to read it. That's the last chapter. When I was young, and I'm guessing many of you had the same experience, uh, high school, college, middle school, maybe before. Um, it was later for me. Someone introduced me and the rest of the kids, the youth group, to a model of prayer. Here's how to pray. We're going to boil it down, keep it really simple. It's Acts, just like the book in the Bible. There's a book in the Bible called Acts. Here's a model or a template of prayer for you, Acts. And those A-C-T-S, many of you remember and know. Adoration or praise, right? Praise doesn't fit very well. So adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication, which is a fancy word again to fit into the S so that you can make a nice smooth acronym from the Bible that makes sense and everyone remembers. Supplication means to petition or to pray or to ask God to supply a need. But the one that we did the least of, of all of those growing up, was the confession. It was sort of lost and forgotten, kind of grayed out. But the one that we probably, as middle school and high school students and young disciples, probably most needed was confession, and a way to do that and to practice that and to live into that. Yes, uh, Ash Wednesday, we said, spoke as a congregation, uh, those of us who were here, a unison prayer of confession. It's up on the screen. We all said it at the same time. Uh, The church I grew up in had something like that, not on the screen, but printed in the bulletin, and we all read it and nodded and bowed, and that was kind of a holy and sacred moment. Uh, And there's value in that but the value is limited. When we confess our sins generically and generally and not specifically and concretely, the unison prayer of confession printed in the bulletin can actually serve to mislead and to think I've really done what the Bible called me to do. And it's true, it's efficient, and we've done part of it, but it also leaves out probably the most important part 
of confession, which is getting specific, which is, yeah, both Bonhoeffer and Richard Foster talk about when we confess our sins alone or read a common prayer of confession, we are confessing our sin, and that may be valid, but there's a way in which we may also simply be confessing to ourselves which ends up being simply a form of psychology or therapy. But something very different happens when we get personal and direct and concrete and specific with God and or with someone, a brother and sister in Christ, who is standing in for God in a tangible way, into whose eyes we can literally look and whose voice we can literally hear from whom we hear words of grace and truth and forgiveness. Last Thursday evening, we had a session meeting. Session, for those of you who aren't uh, sort of in the inner circle, is uh, the Presbyterian name for a board of elders. Last Thursday evening, we, uh, as a board of elders, met, as we do once a month on a Thursday evening, and we had all read chapter one of Bonhoeffer's little book, Life Together, coming in and talked about uh, some of that and talked about some other things and what, uh, and then talked about the church and what it means to be church. And, and one of the things we wanted that was expressed that we hope those outside the church understand about the church and that we can convey and live and say even is that we're not perfect, that we don't have it all together and therefore, not only are sinners out there welcome in here, but that we are the community of sinners, forgiven sinners, but sinners nevertheless. And that the church ought to be a non-judgmental presence rather than a hypocritical presence, a judgmental, a condescending presence as it often has been and as we sometimes are. If we could just have a banner outside the church or a way to communicate that we're all sinners and, and we're all in this together and we're confessing and being forgiven and being healed in this wonderful mix and relationship. Uh, Beacon Light Baptist Church, this is a true, obviously true billboard, uh, says Beacon Light Baptist Church, sinners is welcome. Forgive the grammar, right? Forgive the horrible grammar. But their attempt at communicating uh, is beginning to get to the heart of what confession is all about. Sinners is welcome. I think Seabrook Church of Christ says it a little better, and I found this. Uh, only sinners worship here, right? Only sinners worship here. That's, that's sort of us collectively. We're not the community of the righteous. We're the community of the forgiven sinners, the being redeemed and sanctified and made whole and, James, healed and freed. Sinners is welcome. Only sinners worship here. Imagine if we began our worship services and all of our gatherings, all of our meetings, as Dallas Willard suggested. Hi, my name is Dallas, and I am a sinner. Uh, there is a, 
So my confession is there's, a, there's a, just an absolute lack of confession in my life as a practice. Mm, I tell myself to work it into the worship services periodically. But uh, that's my confession. And I wonder how in the world have I missed that? How have I missed that? How do we miss that as a church? How do we come to think that just reading the Bible and maybe even showing up twice a month to sing a few songs and then to sprinkle in a prayer before dinner periodically will make a big difference in my life or your life and that through those things we'll be transformed. We've got a rather simple default understanding of the life to which God calls us in spiritual disciplines and discipleship and even conversion, uh, one could say. A rather... Uh, simple idea of those kinds of things. Uh, some of us have lived in a Christian culture where the primary thing that you need to do is read the Bible and know the Bible and memorize the Bible. And then if you sprinkle in a little prayer, that's good too. And that'll get you to where God wants you to be. I read something about Mother Teresa uh, recently, and uh, it was about how virtuous and lovely and faithful and uh, loving she was. And uh, the author talked about how some people thought that she got to be and had the kind of heart that she had simply by the person believed reading the Bible a lot and praying a lot, which is fine and good. But the author pointed out that in Mother Teresa's life as a faithful Catholic Christian, there were all of these other disciplines among which and really important to her was this practice or spiritual discipline of confession that the Catholics do, have done, far more intentionally than other churches. And that that was just as formative in her life and in her soul as reading the Bible and other forms of prayer. Oh, what if that's true? How could we have missed that? In, uh, I don't know if you picked up on it, but in Kristen's prayer, she uh, quoted part of 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth of God is not in us. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive all of our sins and cleanse us from unrighteousness. Cleanse. If we confess, that's one of the best-known verses in the Scriptures that call it, that invite us to confess. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by Jesus or by John the Baptist in the Jordan. This is how uh, things begin in the Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel of Mark, with people coming to John the Baptist, who's the forerunner, who's paving the way for Jesus, and that's happening by people confessing their sin, not reading a prayer of confession, but actually sort of cataloging and getting really specific with and before John the Baptist and their baptism. In Ephesians, uh, in Acts 19, there's an account of uh, Paul's going to Ephesus. Uh, it reads, when this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. This revival of sorts is going on in Ephesus Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. 
When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. Just odd data. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. And a big part of that was their confessing their sins. Again, revival happened as early as Acts, the book of Acts, when and as people confessed their sins and vice versa. Proverbs 28, 13, whoever conceals their sins does not prosper, but the one who confesses and renounces them finds mercy. Psalm 32, then I acknowledged my sin to you and, and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Over and over and over, especially in the Old Testament. We find the people of Israel gathering and confessing their sin together. Daniel and Isaiah and Nehemiah leading God's people, calling them to confession. How to do that? How to do that? Uh, the Catholic Church has one way, and there's maybe some latitude in that. I don't know. I'm not... Catholic. But there are a variety of ways to do that, and maybe not a right or wrong, and the scriptures aren't real specific and don't get concrete, other than to over and over and over again call God's people to confession, and presumably in very specific rather than general and generic ways. I decided uh, with a friend of mine to, to, like you've heard me say and write about practicing Lent, and how the different ways we can practice Lent. So a friend and I have agreed, and I won't say anything else about this beyond uh, today, but to uh, connect twice a week during the next six weeks of Lent for very, very, very specific confession. Something I've never done in this way and intentionally. And in that process, and part of that process, and Richard Foster does a phenomenal job in, I mentioned this book, I think last week, in Celebration of Discipline, of how that can happen between people. Bonhoeffer warns that it shouldn't only be one person in a community who does that. That's too big of a burden to bear. But he does point out, and Foster points out, that there is a way of doing this, both for the one confessing and, more specifically, for the one hearing confessing hearing confessions, hearing another's confession, that that should be done carefully and tenderly and in Christ and with Christ in between two people and in the name of Jesus and gently hearing and affirming and listening. And not everyone can do that. Some people will be so horribly offended by what they hear that they will break down or the expression on their face will break the spirit or they don't have the patience, or they don't have the confidence in the cross of Christ to speak what Jesus said he was giving his disciples the authority to speak, and that was forgiveness of sins. But this friend and I are committed to sort of learning from Foster and Bonhoeffer this Lent and to practice this, and I have great hope about it. In his book, Foster talks about when he was young, and for the very first time, he took the practice of confession seriously. And he said it was an absolutely transformative experience for him. And it was a source of freedom and his spirit and freedom from sin. 
as he moved through this process and this journey. The benefits of it end up being much greater than most of us have experienced and most of us would imagine. So, when a person confesses their transgressions to the police, what happens is that they are put in jail. When a person confesses their transgressions to the Lord and or to someone standing in for the Lord and acting and listening on his behalf, that person is set free. Say that again. When a person confesses their transgressions to the police, they're put in jail. When a person confesses their sins to the Lord or to someone listening and acting and speaking on the Lord's behalf, that person is set free. May that freedom be ours this week and beyond. Let's pray. Collectively, God, we know that we can come before you and even before one another, before our neighbors, before our families, before our world, and acknowledge the ways in which we have fallen short, transgressed, sinned, broken your law, failed, etc., etc. We thank you for loving us even as you hate our sin. We thank you for welcoming us uh, always and graciously home into your arms, into your household, into your kingdom. We are just beginning to scratch the surface of your mercy. Continue to grow us in such to deepen us through such, to grow us to maturity and to the fullness of your joy. In the name of Jesus, amen.